Bovard. I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Emily Jashinsky. And I'm Ben Weingarten. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. So welcome back, everybody. I'm back. Uh, I'm back from maternity leave, uh, slightly more sleep deprived than when I left, uh, but very, very happy to be back with you all. Um, we have a really fun show, I think, um, today. We're going to cover a bunch of stuff. Uh, ben is going to kick us off discussing, I think, the speech that's on everyone's mind um, that was given by Biden recently. Uh, I'm going to talk about all the big tech news that broke recently, uh, proving a lot of uh, what we've been suspecting about the government's influences on tech. Emily's going to talk about the green agenda as class warfare, and then Josh is going to wrap us up with a look, uh, a forthcoming look at NatCon 3, which is coming up next week in Miami. Um, so with that, I will kick it off to Ben. Thanks, Rachel, and great to have you back. So we'll, we'll kick off with this speech uh, at Independence Hall in Philadelphia from Joe Biden last week. The speech came on the heels of comments in which he cast up to half the country as semi-fascists. This followed rhetoric in the past, you'll recall, of those who dared to speak up for election integrity as being compared with Bull Connor, uh, neo-Confederates, and the like. So this is nothing new from Mr. Unifier Joe Biden. But to some extent, I do think this speech crossed a rhetorical Rubicon, but the rhetoric itself actually matched up to the reality that we've been describing on this podcast for months now. And I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but I think the, the first point is, you know, we can make a lot of points about, obviously, the imagery. And, you know, those online in particular are prone to go to reductio ad Hitlerum when it comes to anything they don't like. But in this case, the shoe really fits here in terms of how disturbing the imagery and the optics were of Joe Biden standing on that stage with the red glare behind him and two U.S. Marines flanking him as if to say kind of this is our regime and I'm going to stand and defend it. And these two Marines behind me are going to legitimize the horrid words that are about to come out of my mouth. Um, and I think it's been well covered just how eerie the entire scene was and frankly disturbing it was. The rhetoric itself, though, uh, while it's been dismissed as, you know, this is Joe Biden's updated iteration of deplorables or, you know, when, when Barack Obama talked about bitter clingers and the like, there's a different character to the rhetoric that came out of Joe Biden's mouth. And, and just a few of the phrases that stood out to me here were, there's no question the Republican Party is today dominated, driven, and intimidated by Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans, and that is a threat to this country. He said that, quote, Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. He went on then to uh, characterize MAGA Republicans as not respecting the Constitution, believing in the rule of law, they don't recognize the will of the people, refuse to accept the results of free election, working right now as I speak in state after state to give power to decide elections in America to partisans and cronies, Zuckerbuck's cough, uh, empowering election deniers to undermine democracy itself. What was remarkable in listening to the speech as he laid out this list, this parade of horribles, is that almost every single line you could ascribe to Democrats, if not every single line you could ascribe to Democrats. And you know, that leads to a simple shorthand, I think, for understanding the regime's rhetoric, which is everything that they accuse you of, they are probably doing themselves or they intend to do. So Joe Biden, in addition to whatever other cognitive issues he may be suffering from, also suffers from a horrible case of projection. I think that was on full display during this speech. Uh, he also used this rhetoric about you know, uh, MAGA Republicans dismissing the insurrectionist who placed a dagger to the throat of our democracy, pointed rhetoric there. He also said, we're all called by duty and conscience to confront extremists who will put their own pursuit of power above all else. He said that Americans of good faith need to be just as dedicated to defending democracy as MAGA Republicans are committed to, quote, destroying democracy. Uh, of course, he says no place for political violence in America right after saying that and dismissing, of course, the summer 2020 riots. And he says we can't allow violence to be normalized in this country, even though that's, of course, what progressive DAs are doing in cities across the land. So 
What do I think the big takeaways are here? We can talk about you know what is the purpose of the speech in terms of othering roughly half the country to fire up his base. The fact that this is the best Joe Biden has in a closing message going to the midterms of our political opponents are evil, if not a danger, and so you better vote against them. Uh, it also, of course, you know, there's the fundraising aspect of this and the like. The fact that he walked it all back the next day, I do think is telling based upon how badly this was received, even in Democrat quarters, even in friendly media quarters. But I actually think the more important thing than just the ugliness of the rhetoric and the political impact is that the reality, as I said, that we've described every single week here for months now matches that rhetoric. That, and that gets to the question of if this is what Joe Biden believes about up to half the country being a danger, an actual threat, as I've talked about at length over and over again, the national strategy for countering domestic terrorism makes clear that the national security apparatus's job is to defend against that threat and to pursue those Americans. This also coming, of course, on the heels of the Mar-a-Lago raid and beyond. It leads you to, to the question, if this is what Joe and his cronies believe, what do they plan to do about it? These are fighting words, essentially. And he's saying that Americans have to be compelled to defend against these threats. So for the people on the left who raise the prospect of civil war, what do you make of this rhetoric would be the question I would put back to them. So I guess, you know, the, the questions for the group are sort of, yes, what do you make of the optics and the rhetoric? But then how do you juxtapose the optics and the rhetoric with the reality of what the policies have been? And what do we think this portends over the next two months and then beyond? So we're a little short on time, so let's just say quickly, the media in the White House uh, briefing after Biden's speech tried to press the White House on exactly what Ben just said. If you believe this, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are we going to do? And that actually, I think, is as illustrative of the fact that we're in some type of cold civil war as anything else ever could be because what they're implying is not what Ben is implying and what Ben is saying is correct, right? Like the real question here is how is the Biden administration going to completely abuse their powers um, in the pursuit of this level of justice? Not as Jeremy Diamond of CNN was implying, um, you know, what are you going to do to save the country from the unwashed masses and to protect us from ourselves, to protect the people from themselves. Um, and, and so, you know, this is, I think very clearly, we're gonna see more January 6th hearings this fall. We saw the Mar-a-Lago raid being leaked in the same way that a lot of Russiagate stuff has played out. Um, it's a midterm playbook and they wanna have candidates talking about Trump uh, in time that they could spend talking about inflation and gas prices and education, so. Um, I just want to take issue with something that Ben said, which is that, oh, Biden was responding to polling when he changed his mind completely about what the speech said. And I would argue that he forgot the speech he gave because we have a vegetable president for the most part. So maybe people in his orbit were paying attention to the polling, but I, I dispute the notion that Biden is cognizant uh, of what he's doing most of the time. Um, but the second brief Point I will make. And something I think I'm going to have a column up about this week is that, you know, in addition, sort of the next level question of, well, what are you going to do about it if this is what you believe? The problem that we have in this country, when you have an elite class that shares all of the values, uh, the, you know, all the same values. So, you know, the White House and corporate America and Hollywood and all the universities and the cultural institutions is that a speech like this is almost a bat signal to all of the societal arbiters to say, disassociate with these people. In other words, disassociate with half of the country. And, you know, we've already seen trends in this direction. I've, I've written and talked about the, these ideas that, you know, you have banks cutting off people because of their ideology, right? It's not appropriate anymore. It's for, you know, people who engage in whatever ADL describes as hate speech to, to exist on things like PayPal, right? Formerly neutral uh, infra societal infrastructure is becoming uh, ideologically weaponized. And to me, like this is almost a, the creation of an underclass, right? And it's, it's now the message is coming from the White House that it is appropriate for different societal institutions to also take this stand. Uh, and that is very concerning. So I'm going to potentially have a piece, if I can get my life together, I'll have a piece up about that this week. So I have a lot of thoughts on this, unsurprisingly. I'm not entirely sure how many of them are particularly novel relative to just the great deluge of commentary that we've had properly. Obviously, this is a speech that demands a lot of commentary over the past five days or so. One is, I find this entire notion of the Biden administration trying to run against so-called MAGA Republicans, frankly, very bizarre. 
first of all, MAGA was a 2016 campaign slogan. That was literally six years ago. In 2020, MAGA was partially used by President Trump and Mike Pence, but Keep America Great Cut was also another campaign era slogan. More importantly, Donald Trump is literally not on the ballot. And the fact, that obviously, that Biden, as Ben says, feels the need to kind of paint this or attempt to paint this very stark dichotomy, this stark contrast between the, his policies and someone who is not on the ballot, <laughs> hasn't been on the ballot for two years now, is pretty freaking crazy. And, you know, this will be a transition to our, our next segment, the big tech segment. But, you know, it, it bears reiterating here that the classical definition of fascism, or at least one classical definition of fascism, is kind of a full fusion of the state and the corporate, where the state fully commandeers the corporate. It's one of the great lies, obviously, that um, you know the American right over the past few years has become this kind of semi-fascistic, quasi-fascist political party. I mean, Donald Trump, going back to his 2020 campaign rallies, was excoriating on the stump over and over and over again, socialism. Um, you know, that is not the hallmark of, of a semi-fascistic movement. But, you know, more importantly, I, I, the big point here, the big takeaway is, I think, the point that Rachel is getting at it and that Ben alluded to, which is just this metastasis of this two-tier, not just system of justice. The two-tier system of justice is what we've seen over and over and over again with John Eastman, with Peter Navarro, obviously culminating in the, in the unprecedented pre-dawn raid of Mar-a-Lago a few weeks ago. That The two-tier system of justice we know stands. What we are rapidly, rapidly hurtling to is a two-tiered society in general, and that is directly downstream of this quasi-fascistic, frankly, this quasi-fascistic fusion of the state and the corporate. I'm not entirely sure that our side has fully figured out what to do about this, but you know, perhaps we'll get started here in this next segment. Yeah, so as you know, Josh referenced, the government working with corporations hand in glove is commonly called fascism. And you know, what a lot of us have been talking about in the big tech debate for several years is, you know, how are the tech companies making their censorship decisions? And if you've been in this debate at all, you have been confronted with the objection that, well, if the government's not doing it, it's not censorship, right? And they say it just in that voice. It's always in that tone of voice. I just want that to be known. We so, got it, Rachel, you're a mom now. Yeah. <laughs> my mom voice <laughs> but that's how they always say it right all these private companies can't censor they're not the government well lol because what we have long suspected uh there is now sort of evidentiary proof of of this government private company relationship and most recently we've seen this in a filing from uh the attorney general of missouri uh eric schmidt when the attorney general of louisiana jeff landry in a filing uh, based on subpoenas, based on third-party evidence, showed actual documentations of what they call the regular chats that took place between the CDC's chief of digital media and Twitter's senior manager from public policy to censor what they deem to be unapproved opinions on these private platforms. Now, this is just the latest you know, evidence that we have, but when I was going through the record you know, prior to recording this, you know, we have multiple other uh, examples Examples of this happening uh, based on a FOIA request from America First Legal, which is run by Stephen Miller. Their FOIA request demonstrated direct engagement, again, between the CDC and Twitter, including the CDC providing Twitter a list of tweets that it thought should be censored as misinformation, and also evidence of the CDC directly editing Google's products as it related to vaccines. Um, you also have FOIA uh, evidence from Judicial Watch regarding the government of California directly engaging with YouTube and Twitter, again, flagging specific content, specific users, a specific uh, products they wanted banned. Obviously, the most sort of infamous example was um, last year, the start in July, when Jen Psaki from the White House said, oh, yeah, of course, we're working with Facebook to, you know, ban these certain series of accounts, you know, followed up by the Surgeon General giving a 22-page report on what the social media companies should, you know, how they should handle their content. So we have myriad examples now of the government working hand in glove with these companies, which I think should put a, just a, a final, uh, nail in the coffin of this idea that while well, these companies don't center because they're not the government, we now have proof of this. And so I think, you know, going forward, if there is ever a majority in Congress interested in dealing with this question, what we've heard from Republicans so far is, well, we're going to do oversight. We're going to demand that these CEOs testify. Well, fine, but we already have the evidence, right? We know it's being done and we know how it's being done and we know who is doing it. <laughs> so the question then becomes, what is it that you do now? 
And, you know, we've talked at length, I think on this podcast about, you know, what you can do. I've made the argument for a long time that if you actually enforce antitrust against these companies going forward, right, you don't allow companies that control speech to become this large, you don't get this effect of three or four companies controlling the public square. However, I would also say we've reached a point, I think, where we need to start talking seriously about common carriage. You know, I have been somewhat resistant to that initially because I said, you know, why do we want to entrench these companies? But they are so entrenched at this point that if they are going to take this role of, you know, managing speech in the public square and the discourse, they should be subject to uh, a handful of rules uh, that makes them treat all comers neutrally. So I would just say, I, I leave it there. I'm open to, you know, kind of d debate on these points, but the fact that we have to do something now is not an ideological position. It should just be a common sense position. Well, it, it's a fundamentally empirical position, right? I mean, if we, if we want to go back to what conservatism 101 is, I mean, especially in kind of like a Nakani way in contradistinction to kind of the past 50 years of like an overly liberal, you know, dogmatic, ideological conservatism, conservatism is like empirically observing what is happening in the world and responding to what is happening. That's kind of like Edmund Burke, Russell Kirk 101, right? And, you know, that there's a reason why, like, our side is so much more animated, especially after these remarkable uh, revelations that we saw just last week from Attorneys General Landry and Schmidt. It's so much, you know, that, that our side is so much more animated relative to, you know, when Josh Hawley first got to the Senate three and a half, four years ago now, and he was kind of in no man's land talking about Section 230. People were like, well, dude, like, what are you talking about? Like, we have, like, the national debt. Wait, okay. But uh, common carrier, I personally think, is the path forward, at least for certain companies like Facebook. I mean, my stance on this for the past few years has always been the specific kind of suite of remedies and policies is going to be tailored to the company in question. So for example, you probably don't need to slap kind of a common carrier label under uh, Title II of the 1934 Communications Act on, on Twitter, which is a, a you know, a, a Twitter is a platform that has disproportionate clout because the blue checks, the journos, the media, whatever, they all talk to each other on it. But, you know, something like 25% of the American populace at the most actually has a Twitter account, so you probably don't need to actually regulate that the same way as your ISPs or phone companies. But for a company like Facebook, I mean, especially, especially in the aftermath of what we saw here, I really think that Facebook simply has to, has to be regulated as a common carrier. You know, it's worth reiterating that we had a special episode on this very podcast after Justice Thomas suggested this uh, in, a, in a special opinion uh, almost a year and a half ago now. It was April 2021, a case called... Biden versus Knight First Amendment. Uh, Justice Thomas went on his own to kind of put forward the idea that maybe it's time to have this discussion. So I'm happy that we're having it. And, you know, there's nothing inherently kind of big government icky about this. It's, it's worth reiterating one more time that car common carriage doctrine goes back five, six hundred years in the English common law. And this is not like socialism. This is a venerable, ancient English common law doctrine. The basic idea here, to, and then I'll, uh, I'll get off my soapbox, the basic idea to kind of paraphrase the great English common law jurist Sir Matthew Hale is that when a when a company's purportedly private conduct is so clothed in the public interest, then you necessarily have to kind of have a quid pro quo arrangement where you can immunize that con that company from certain, for example, tort liabilities in exchange for a non-discrimination principle. That's what we do for trains, airplanes, internet service providers, phone companies. From my perspective, there's no reason whatsoever why Facebook and quite possibly Google should be subject to the same or should not be subject to the same legal treatment. So I'll be brief. Um, yeah, I do think that there is ample evidence of this kind of behavior. There's also been some really fascinating and also terrifying revelations from Alex Berenson's case when it comes to Twitter. And there you have White House officials essentially targeting him directly via Twitter and also tattletale journalists in tow, which speaks to the same sort of collusion that we saw, by the way, around the Hunter Biden laptop. And of course, we have the recent Mark Zuckerberg revelations there as well, where you have journalists serving as mouthpieces for and cry bullies on behalf of the regime. You have the regime security apparatus badgering the social media companies. And the social media companies themselves, of course, in large part, not every executive, of course, but is like-minded. So then when you have the FBI or the DOJ or any other agency, uh, CDC, NIH, et cetera, going to them, and you have the independent and, and independent apolitical experts directing them to censor speech accordingly, it sort of absolves them of their anti-speech sins, or at least they might think. 
However, I do think this goes back to another theme that we've talked about before, which is First Amendment violations by proxy. We seem to have an infinite number of smoking guns here. And so, you know, one question that I would have to Josh as a lawyer and to Rachel as well would be, you know, what are going to be the test cases here? Who has standing? What kind of remedies would you seek? What would be the best case or cases that you could bring uh, and ultimately cause change through the lawfare avenue here? And then the other aspect is that I, I do think is worth keeping in mind, and I'm all for an all of the above set of options here to find some remedies, but is to the extent you know, what, what, I guess, what would the ideal world look like with these platforms? And if it is actually honoring the First Amendment based upon what we've seen transpire, do we think government authorities themselves, to the extent they, in effect, have more power over these platforms, won't abuse those powers even further and further entrench the worst practices that we've already seen? That's not an argument against pursuing common carrier, going after Section 230, et cetera. But it is a question of practically what would happen ultimately uh, to the extent there was a sea change in terms of how these companies are regulated. Well, and just to like another illustration of the cold civil war that we find ourselves in is pretty clear in the fact that, as has been mentioned a couple of times just in the segment alone, the Biden administration is actually bragging about this. They are not trying to hide it. You don't need to have any hearings. I mean, if it comes up in hearings, great, but like they are talking about this out in the open. They have hired their own fact-checking armies to sort of have this illusion of them punting to journalists and fact checkers when in fact that's the opposite of what they're doing they're uh, exerting more control as publishers very 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 clearly um and, and so if you need any illustration of the fact that this is going to be, get to a point of irreconcilable differences between the left and the right um it's right there, there there's room for antitrust there's no question about it um and the left i think hopefully you know honest voices on the left will shift as you have more matt taibis and barry weiss's and people highlighting the absurdities of this but national democrats the Democratic Party establishment, the people in power right now want uh, big tech to have way more control over our speech than way less. Um, and let's just not forget that as we're talking about all of this, um, we're we're having these this discourse on slot machines. I mean, that is just fundamentally an important conversation here. It's like the the administration is uh, now weighing in on a discourse that we treat like gambling um, on our, our personal, political and professional lives. And it's always worth remembering that, too. By the way, just real quick, moderator's privilege, maybe? I don't know. Do moderators get privileges here? I'm just kidding. But um, So it does seem, uh, the case I was mentioning in the beginning, uh, filed by the two AGs, uh, Josh can explain maybe all the, the lawyer lawyering that's going on here, but the judge has ruled in their favor in the terms that they get discovery now from Fauci and Karine Jean-Pierre. So that's a big deal. Um, we're going to get more receipts. The, the lawyer translation is that Rachel <laughs> is corroborated. That is a big deal. <laughs> yeah. Receipts are coming, people. Okay. On to Emily. <laughs> um, yeah, the there's a, a good, I think, reason to be talking this week about the Democrats' green agenda as class warfare, because within a week of uh, California declaring that it will stop the sale of gas-powered personal vehicles by uh, 2035, not that far in the future, um, within a week of making that announcement, I, I wish I could make this up. It's it's not, I, nobody could, could ever write fiction this good. They are currently without an ounce of self-awareness asking people not to charge their electric vehicles during certain hours. I mean, it's the most like incredible um, example of how ridiculous these policies are, but that's their message, right? And that's when you see Jennifer Granholm out there talking about tax credits for electric vehicles. Um, this is, a, again, it's just worth emphasizing over and over. Uh, you could even rope the sort of elite foreign policy into this as well. But like the priorities clearly of our elites um, are out of whack with the working class. They will hurt the working class disproportionately um, and they will be much e more easily weathered by people who have the financial resources to do it. Um, this is a, a total war on America's middle class. And I think also it's really important. I'm writing an article that may be out by the time this uh, episode is live about how it's it's really crucial for establishment Republicans who don't want to get their hands dirty in the culture war until they look at something like Glenn Youngkin's victory in Virginia and realize maybe there's some political expediency to be found in this 
Um, we're seeing, you know, the, the war between Mitch McConnell and Rick Scott heat up again. Well, if there's anything that can bring two sides of this together, it is the green agenda, which is a culture war. You can talk about it in terms of kitchen table economics, but you must also talk about it as an assault on the middle class way of life in America. Um, I did a great podcast with Dr. Matthew Meehan of Hillsdale. Um, he was just a, he's such a great interview uh, earlier this year about self-driving cars, which sounds like a, a boring issue, perhaps. Um, but actually, Dr. Meehan explains how it's so essential to American culture, to the, the sort of American mentality um, to be able to have our own uh, agency over travel, over cars and our infrastructure. So the more that the Republican establishment can get serious uh, when it comes to countering the green agenda, which by the way, it's worth noting Exxon. Why is Exxon happy with the infrastructure bill that was passed recently that was basically, or I'm sorry, the inflation bill that was passed recently, which was basically an environmental bill. Exxon was happy with it because they are in investing in these new green technologies, so-called green technologies. They're the ones investing in it. Um, and, and so they can weather those storms again. And so they're in the political, you know, they have politicians on both sides of the aisle in their pay. Um, and, and so going forward, the Republican establishment needs to understand that the stakes here are not just electoral consequences, although electoral consequences are in their favor if they talk about this issue correctly, because it's so much deeper. It is class warfare, and it would be the end of America as we know it, and they're happy about that, um, but the American people will not be. So with that, I'll toss it open to the group. This is one of those issues where I, I just like look at the issue and, and what's being said about it. And I'm like, do you, are you, are these people aware they're saying this out loud? Like I used to, like in the beginning of, maybe it was last summer, I used to tweet, right? Like, oh, the democratic plan uh, for climate change is to tell all the poors to go buy a Tesla. And then like they did it, then it like became a platform issue for them. And it's just incredible. And I think Emily, to your point, the fact that Republicans haven't been able to capitalize on this as a middle-class issue, I just think is, is malpractice in so many ways. Like some of them I'm sure have, but more often than not, you'll hear them go to the floor and be like, this is socialism. And it's like, yeah, we can talk about that. But the more realistic and pragmatic impact of this is you know, in this, in a state like New York, where I grew up, where, where the state has, you know, a huge percentage of their energy has to be met by renewable energy. Like that's in, that was like a state law that was passed. And so energy prices are through the roof. It is not hard to show how regressive that is, how the people who struggle most are the people, uh, you know, who, who's, a bigger, a bigger proportion of their income has to go towards those energy, energy prices. And, you know, we're not far away. I think if Democrats go down this path of, uh, in, in France was it the yellow jacket riots, right. Where you, France tried to impose a, a driving limitation on people. And who does that impact the most rural communities where people have to drive to get to work? Like this isn't hard. The pieces are not hard to put together. Um, but I think Emily is right. Like, if you do not want people to suffer under this, you have to stand up and say it and say it in language that is really difficult to argue with. And it's not waving a socialism flag. Unfortunately, it is actually talking about how this will raise costs on the middle class. I mean, this is such an obvious issue for Republicans to talk about, right? I, I mean, I, I guess what it reminds me of, it kind of makes me think back to like when I took public choice as an elective back in law school. I mean, public choice theory is this idea uh, I'm probably going to butcher this. Honestly, it's been a number of years since I took Saul Levmore's public choice class. But according to like the George Mason Institute Mercatus Center kind of, um, you know, the libertarian economics PhD sets kind of conception of public choice theory, it is this idea that a very like numerically small but nonetheless powerful cloud of, of lobbyists or interests or so forth can dictate policy in such a way where um, uh, the harms are very uh, are very diffuse, but the benefits are very tightly concentrated. Um, and, and, and because of that, because the harms are so diffuse, it allows like those to whom it benefits to kind of had to have you know, much more easy, much, much easier cloud in terms of lobbying for the preferred outcomes. OK, so all of that is kind of like a predicate to say that the the green lobby kind of fits this conception to a T. They have tremendous money. They have lots of donors. They have lots of interested VCs. They have lots of kind of fanatical activists on their side, people who I have to say are probably disproportionately kind of pagan, atheist, secularist, whatever. Um, you know, Gaia kind of earth worship being kind of like the, you know, the the OG alternative to the, you know, Judaism, Christianity and Islam, right? That's kind of going back to 
the Romans and the Greeks and the Egyptians even before them. But uh, all that's to say here that the median American is not part, uh, obviously, suffice to say, of that kind of green uh, NGO kind of lobbying public choicey cabal that I'm doing a very sloppy job of describing here. And the median American just wants to lower gas prices. It's really not that hard. It, it is like begging for some very kind of decisive, deliberate, explicit campaigning from, from the right side of the aisle. And we see that sometimes, right? I mean, we see some folks, we see like the Kevin McCarthy's of the world every so often kind of spouting platitudes about kind of American energy independence. But, you know, let's see like an aggressive plan to call out this fetishization, this Pete Buttigieg line that, oh, everyone can just get a Tesla. I mean, the economics of this obviously don't work, as we saw with kind of this electric vehicle subsidy, and then like the prices of the vehicles go down, right? That was kind of the, the story in the so-called inflation reduction. Act. So none of the economics of this actually work here, but from a brass tacks, like win elections voter standpoint, there are way more voters who just want sanity at the pump than care about saving the climate in some fanatical, bizarre Gaia worship sort of sense. So it, it, it is a huge political winner for Republicans if they actually campaign on it correctly. Well, let me just say, since it hasn't been said, the economics do work out well here for one group besides the rent seekers who will benefit here to kind of use that economic jargon. But Vladimir Putin's a huge winner of this. So aren't these people Putin stooges who are for the green agenda? Because of course, Russia and other resource-rich countries, most of them adversarial, uh, who have natural gas and other forms of energy readily available, uh, will make a fortune on the markets while we kill ourselves and act suicidally in terms of not unleashing our own energy. And I think to go back to the opening segment of Joe Biden's remarks, I, I actually do think that the green agenda is kind of consistent with the hostile remarks towards half the country, which is it is a pointedly a sort of punitive and hostile agenda towards the middle class because they want to eviscerate essentially the middle class. And I think it ought to be said, you can't name a policy essentially that's been put forth in the last two years that would actually redound to the benefit of middle class Americans, that would help them take home more money, that would help them create their families in safe communities with traditional values. Everything points in the opposite direction of that. And we have the benefit of seeing where Europe is, many European countries, you know, say 10 years more in terms of down the road of the progressive agenda to what it leads to. And they're, we're going to be talking soon in certain countries about not having heat in the winter or certainly not having it at an affordable price. We're not that far behind here. And you have to ask to what end, again, is the point to try and provoke outrage and then use that to crack down further on the citizenry? Is it to destroy middle class altogether so that there's a lower underclass that is completely reliant upon government for its bread while the elites continue to act as if they're above everyone else. Uh, it's not clear to me, but I do think the agenda should be called out as an actively hostile one towards tens of millions of Americans. And of course, it's the most regressive agenda of all, because to Rachel's point, those who are harmed most are those who are most, most demand, most need affordable energy prices because it's baked into every aspect of the basics of life. All right, so let's transition to our final segment here, uh, and this is just going to be kind of like a, a preview of NatCon 3, which of course starts this Sunday in, in Miami, uh, technically in, in Aventura, Florida, to be precise. I'm the, I'm the local here, so I have to kind of make that very fine distinction, but I, you know, as, as the de facto local, I'm just obviously thrilled to welcome in so many friends and colleagues and like-minded folks from across the entire country and really the world to you know, our sunny slice of, of paradise, I guess you you, you might say, uh, to Governor DeSantis's fiefdom, and you know the speaker lineup for this conference is really just exceptional. Um, you know, not, if you go to natcon.org, you can see, and I'm not just saying that. I mean, like I, I genuinely struggle to think of the last time I've seen a political conference really that had that has a speaker lineup quite of this magnitude. So if you're still on the fence, would strongly encourage you know to. Go right to natcon.org. You, you know, and get your ticket. The four of us will be there. Many other very interesting people from this space, uh, of course, will be there. I guess as far as specifically what I'm looking for and kind of the conversations, both formally speaking on stage and informally in kind of the lobby and the bar and the restaurants and all that, that I'm kind of looking forward to, is really just trying to continue the slow, methodical process of trying to fine-tune an actual concrete policy-specific policy-laden governing agenda. So some of us, 
at NACON 2 in, our, in Orlando, uh, we had speeches on this topic. I, I spoke on this. Rachel certainly spoke on this. Uh, some others spoke on this as well. Michael Knowles, if I recall, spoke on this topic. That that's really personally what I'm looking for. So there was a big emphasis at NACON two uh, in Orlando last year of kind of forming this alliance uh, between national conservatives and kind of anti woke classical liberals. That was kind of that that panel on stage for those of you who were there between uh, Yoram Hazoni, Sora Bamari, uh, Dave Rubin, and, and and Douglas Murray, if I remember the four correctly. Uh, you know, certainly we'll have. I, I anticipate some of those similar conversations this time. But I think personally, from what I am most looking forward to is kind of focusing less so on kind of the alliance with the anti-Marxist classical liberals, because to be totally honest with you, from my personal perspective, if you don't realize what time it is at this point, and that there was only one kind of sane political party to vote for at this point, then I'm not really sure what more, what much more work we can do. Um, you know, it is worth noting, of course, that there was a national conservative statement of principles that came out over this past summer. So that is kind of floating there in the background as well, kind of laying down 10 kind of concrete data points as to what it is we are looking to do. So again, the the various panels and, and the conversations, both formal and informal, will probably be dedicated, at least in, in large part, to trying to continue to flesh out those policies from that statement of principles. And if you have not done so, to be clear, you should check out those statement of principles, which was originally published at the American Conservative, but I believe it has been cross-posted to the European Conservative and, of course, the nationalconservatism.org website itself. Um, so all four of us will be there, like I said, and um, I, I guess I'll kind of just open it up to you guys. I mean, like, what specifically are, are are you most looking forward to besides coming down here to the free state of Florida? I'm really looking forward to uh, seeing Rachel for the first time in, in months um, and the new and improved Rachel, to be sure. Uh, but also, we should say, if you enjoyed Inez uh, over the last few months, she'll be there as well. But uh, Ben and Rachel, I, this isn't, I, I guess I'll get my insult in, are older than me um, and have, have been around the block uh, like Josh. I guess I'm the youngest here a little bit. But it is my sense uh, that NatCon, I think, is really, really starting to become probably the most vibrant and, and interesting of these annual conferences on the right. Um, the one that I've heard multiple people tell me they'll have FOMO for not being at, as silly as that sounds, because when you do work in the space, it's it's important to be a part of these conversations and people want to be a part of these conversations. And the ones that I think are that are happening at NatCon um, are just more important than they are at anywhere else, because there's a genuine, like very real diversity. There's a very real curiosity. Um, and people try to pin the national conservatism movement as one that is, uh, you know, very much totally like monolithic and, you know, does not have a spectrum of ideology in it. But that couldn't be further from the truth. And I think if people really spend the time um, to see what's happening at NatCon, they'll see that. Uh, they'll see that within those statement of principles, um, there's a really robust and vibrant conversation about what that looks like translated into policy, about what that looks like translated into culture. That's what I'll be speaking on. Um, so it's my sense that this has, has become, um, you know, as someone who's been around for uh, over a decade, uh, not not as long as my peers here, uh, but it, it does seem like it's really taking up that space, and I, I'm very very happy that's happened because it's a better conversation um, than the one we were having before. The ageism, I just I can't get. I'm just kidding. I can't, can't, can't get over it. You're fine. You're fine. <laughs> Um, yeah, we will all be there. I'm I'm excited. This is my first trip. I will be there with the baby in tow. So pray to God he sleeps. Um, no, seriously, like everybody pray for that. <laughs> um, because I'm kicking off, I think Sunday morning at like 9am, um, or sort of Monday morning at 9am. Um, and you know, I, I echo kind of a lot of what uh, Josh and Emily have said. It's, it's always interesting, I think, to, to watch a movement begin and grow. And I think the NatCon conference has been the hub of a lot of energy that's been building on the right um, you know, and this is sort of the third iteration of this conference and everyone is going to have a little bit of a different flavor. And I think NatCon one was sort of all of us sort of finding each other and talking about, you know, kind of ideas that were very nascent at the time. Uh, the second NatCon, you really sort of felt a lot of the energy. I think, you know, Yoram and Anna did a great job of pulling in people from across the spectrum to demonstrate, I think that these ideas I think have broad purchase. And at this NatCon, I think, you know, the movement is now at a position where, you know, that energy needs to start to be directed. 
And I think that's what I'm going to try to focus my speech on in particular um, is, okay, you know, our ideas we know are winning ideas. We have a lot of energy behind them. So if we win, what do we then do? And that's always the hard part of a movement, right? Is, is to actually build and propose policy and have an agenda. And so I'm gonna to try to outline some of where I think that should go from a legislative perspective. I'm gonna to try to do it uh, in a way that has some panache and, and is not boring. So, cause policy can often turn that way, but we'll see. But I'm excited to see y'all there. Well, I guess first, my one response to Emily is uh, don't confuse age with wisdom. Um, <laughs> and uh, hopefully, though, the, don't whatever... worry, Ben, I don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Coming from a non-lawyer here. Yes. Uh, that's an inside joke, but we're just going to keep that running through these these segments. And also uh, a note from our producer that Will will be there as well. So you will have the whole NACON squad plus on hand um, from my vantage point. I'm humbled and thrilled to be participating again. I was really happy to see, you know, last time I was sort of a fly on the wall for uh, the vigorous conversation on the China challenge. And I think that's been elevated to the main stage now. So I'm happy to see that. And that gets to, to me, the main point, which is that unlike so many other conferences that exist here, almost every single conversation, First of all, they're going to cover a wide spectrum of issues and themes, but they are the most vital and important themes. And to Josh's point, the roster of speakers is just exceptional. No matter what panel discussion you sit in on, there's going to be something provocative, compelling, and new. That said, you know, the way that I judge these conferences is beyond, of course, you know, the joy that you get from the intellectual ferment and getting to kind of cross-pollinate and share ideas with these really smart and accomplished, well-credentialed and deservedly so, as opposed to just credentialist people, is that you're actually going to learn something new and take something away from it. And I think pretty much every single conversation that's going to be held there, uh, you will as a, a spectator and observer. So I'm thrilled and humbled to be there alongside all of you. And I uh, can't wait to talk about uh, in my speech, the capture of our elites by communist China, um, which I think actually covers a lot of the broader themes that we deal with in NatCon, and we'll we'll touch on also that statement of principles that Josh referenced as well. Yeah, and I'm probably the only one who I guess has not made reference to uh, what panel or speech I'm giving, so I probably should just do that. So uh, uh, on Sunday, the first day of the conference, I will be part of a, a panel uh, on the U.S. Constitution post-Dobbs, in, in, in a post-Dobbs, post-Roe versus Wade uh, world, uh, you're going to get lots of different perspectives on jurisprudence and constitutionalism on that panel, so it should be a lot of fun. But hope to see you guys there. Again, natcon.org if you've not bought your ticket. But on, I guess on that note, we probably should transition to final thoughts if anyone has that. Um, I can kick us off. You know, I think... Um... And I'm going to work this, I think, a little bit into my speech at, at NatCon. But I do think, you know, we have really on the big tech front, I think a lot of the a lot of the energy has been driven by sort of outrage and, and grievances and saying, you know, you can't censor us, you're censoring us, and this debate about if, if how it's happening, if it's happening. And I want to reiterate a point that I was making, which really is that okay, we know now. We know it's being done, we know how this is a level of uh, you know. I don't think it's actually too extreme to call it fascism because that's definitionally what it is uh, when you have this sort of state-directed uh, enterprise being carried out at the corporate level. We there needs to be a strong policy response to this. So I think you know if there is a conservative Republican majority in Congress, oversight is not enough. And I just want to emphasize that again. And I think the expectation from the base should be far more than just oversight. Action has to happen here. Um, and I think that's what Republicans should be ginning up to do because uh, we know everything that's happening. It's a matter of what we're going to do about it. A free society, as we've said so many times on this podcast, cannot exist when you have um, you know, a self-government that is propelled by speech, when you have that speech being controlled from the top down uh, by a group, a small group of people, uh, you know, informed by the arm of the state. So reiterating point I made, but I, it's one I feel strongly about and what I'm going to talk about uh, at NACON. So I can go with a slightly more micro and less macro uh, final thought here. I, I spent my entire kind of opening monologue on, on my own podcast over Newsweek on this this week because it's it's a very small event. It's a tempest in a teapot, but I do think that is worth kind of shining a spotlight on. So there was a very interesting, from my vantage point, kerfuffle um, between 
some some gatekeepers um, at, at National Review, and, and, and you know these are people that some of us may be friendly with or friends with, even um, folks like Kevin Williamson and Alexandra DeSanctis, who I think intervened in the Arizona Senate race and basically instructed their their readers or, or or followers on Twitter to not support Blake Masters, um, the very kind of national conservatism, new right oriented Republican nominee for U.S. Senate there because of a, of a stealth edit to his campaign website that he did, uh, where he basically tweaked or removed uh, his language supporting a constitutional amendment to support personhood for unborn children. So for the record, um, I am I am very much on stance as supporting that policy. I was literally in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, like three weeks ago to speak on this very topic to a live action state lawmaker summit. By the way, as our as our producer helpfully reminds us, surprise, surprise, Blake Masters will actually be there um, speaking in that and in, in that country. So the reason that this really kind of riled me up here is, is multifold. One is this really kind of reeks, I think, of the exact same kind of uh, what I've referred to as principled loserdom, this idea that we're content to kind of just lose and just and just go home as long as we did the absolute most principled thing, no matter what. Right. This is kind of the exact mentality of the infamous against Trump issue and, and National Review back in 2016 during the primaries. And it's very frustrating to me. I think that some folks seem to have not necessarily learned the lessons six and a half years later. Second of all, um, you know, it is worth reiterating here that as, as far as I'm aware, I have not seen a single person suggest that Blake Masters has actually changed his actual stance on this issue, on the actual abortion issue. Rather, it is just simply, again, to kind of go back to conservatives empirically observing the world, it is just an empirical reality that the Democratic side of the aisles and their voters in particular seem to be pretty riled up over the Dobbs decision. And in the in the Arizona Senate race in particular, Mar at the time we we're recording this, Mark Kelly has a, a gargantuan, a gargantuan fundraising advantage over Blake Masters and he's hitting the abortion issue hard. Now, having said that, I think Blake was what was wrong to stealth edit that. Once you kind of commit to that stance, I don't see a particular benefit in, in, in kind of doing that. It kind of risks, and in, in, in this case, it proved to kind of reveal the whole Streisand effect, right, where you kind of try to hide something and then it kind of blows it up a portion. But the idea here that in a purple state, in a swing state where control of the U.S. Senate is up for grabs, that like the flagship publication for U.S. conservatism would have multiple prominent voices saying do not support the nominee here, I think is bat crap, crazy, insane. And it should be called out for the outrageous BS on stilts that it is. But the other thing that's going on here, and I'll get off my kind of rant on this note, is what I think what I think is really happening here is this is kind of a proxy. This is a proxy between the old guard, the, the so-called dead consensus, and kind of the new guard. Because again, you know, Blake Masters, he's 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 physically young. He's like 35 years old or something like that. He obviously is kind of the, the protege of Peter Thiel, who's kind of the, the new right, the NatCon crowd's kind of preeminent kind of public funder. So there's really kind of a proxy fight going in, going here as well. And it's, it's really kind of just takes me off, frankly, um, uh, because, because of all these factors that are, that are getting played here. And again, I say that as someone who is very, very publicly on the record in support of constitutional personhood for unborn children. But this, this attack from, um, from some folks' national reviews is a total misfire, in my opinion. Well, the, the proxy fights are a good reason to come to NatCon because uh, the, those, it's a space where those battles really are happening um, and those conversations are really happening and saying, you know, what, which fronts are, you know, most appropriate here. So I, I think, you know, it goes back to the segment that we did on uh, the segment that I did on green energy uh, because the rift between Rick Scott and Mitch McConnell, which we've covered here before, um, and I, I believe Rachel's written about it. Um, that's an important one. And it's one to keep your eye on going into the fall with these midterms, because that's really my, my final thought here is the money is now going to start pouring into certain races. We saw Mitch McConnell drop out of Ron Johnson's race uh, the last time Johnson was up for election. And, and Johnson has really never let him forget it. And I think, you know, populists and the party will, won't forget that this time either. Um, but where the money is going, we've already seen a little of that slip from Blake Masters um, and McConnell basically asking Peter Thiel to put more money money back into the race. Um, these are these are our proxy wars and they're happening in the midterm and they're 
perfectly natural. Um, the media is going to seize on them as, you know, the soul of the nation playing out, in, in the words of Joe Biden, uh, but actually John Meacham, playing out in this this war in the Republican Party. Um, but w- what it really is, is the Republican Party grappling with what it means to have a more working class base um, and Democrats to have a less working class base. And that's a natural thing for the party to be working out right now. Um, it's totally natural to find Rick Scott pitted against Mitch McConnell, uh, neither of which I think are like perfect messengers uh, for their respective sides, but um, are are duking it out, I think, in very interesting ways. And the Mitch McConnells of the world need to learn the lessons correctly um, of the Glenn Youngkin victory and others that we've seen since and internalize them. And at the end of the day, realize how dramatic the stakes uh, are now and are, are much more dramatic than simple tax cuts. So uh, all of this is being worked out. It's kind of perfect that NatCon is is happening uh, as we head into the fall and things are heating up um, and as the sort of commentariat debates these questions. So uh, this is a, a debate that, you know, the, the elections in, in, the, in a couple of months are going to put a spotlight on and Republicans need to have good answers. So I'll be brief uh, to go back to the opening segment. One point that I failed to make was I do think the language about semi-fascism is very pointed and interesting. Obviously, the left uses language as propaganda. They have essentially undermined the meaning, the traditional meanings of almost every single word when it suits them. Uh, But the left has always cast its opponents as fascists to try to cloak themselves in some kind of morality. And so to the extent that their opponents are fascists, as classically the left always cast their opponents, I do want to know, is Joe Biden an anti-fascist? And I think he ought to be asked that question himself. And I think he threw sop to Antifa, quite frankly, in those remarks. Uh, Lastly, completely off the beat topic, but I can tie it into NatCon 3. I believe Hans von Spakovsky of Heritage is going to be speaking on elections there. And he's been hammering home a point that I don't think many people have focused on, but it's quite outrageous in a sea of outrages. Uh, And that is the perversion of the U.S. Census, Uh, something that I focused on during the Trump years. You may recall there was a huge battle over this question of can you include a question about citizenship on the U.S. Census? And uh, the left, starting with Eric Holder and many others, fought tooth and nail against it. And they ended up defeating the Trump administration on ridiculous technical grounds to add that simple question that had been there for years. There was another way that it appears the census was perverted to undermine, by the way, the integrity of our electoral system. And Von Spakovsky has been writing about this prolifically. There were massive errors in the census, which led to a huge shift in population for the benefit of Democrat states and to the detriment of Republican states. In other words, there was overcounting in in almost every instance where there was an error in Democrat states and undercounting in Republican states. Consequently, in terms of apportionment of seats, more representatives and also more dollars get allocated to those states that have more people. And by the way, that includes illegal aliens. So there's foreign interference here. Uh, Von Spakovsky has been writing about these errors. They're massively significant, especially in such a tight electoral playing field that we're looking at right here. So I'd urge you to check out those articles and I'll probably be reporting on them as well in the near future. All right, well, I think that takes us uh, to the end of the episode. So I just also wanna say a huge thank you to Inez for filling in for me while I was gone. Um, so brilliant and capable, we already miss her. So come to NatCon, you can see her there. Um, but on behalf of Josh, Emily, and Ben, I'm Rachel Bovard, this is NatCon Squad, and we will see you on the next episode. <laughs>